anytime that someone goes on a uh, trip like that, whether it's two weeks or longer, there are all sorts of things that are needed to make that possible. And I think w- one of the beauties of being the church is being able to not just call people to go, but also send well. And so as a church, I would say, let's rally around Andra, uh, be praying for her as she goes, ask her about her trip when she comes back, what she saw, what she observed, how she saw God at work. Um, the, the reality is a- anytime that we set out to do something big or small in our lives, we stop and we ask the question, uh, what do I need to be able to accomplish this? And, and so if you go away camping for a weekend, you ask the question, what do I need for this to be a good weekend away? Or if you are seeking to do a project around your house, you ask, what do I need to be able to accomplish this project? Or, or if you're just setting out to bake a batch of cookies, you ask, what do I need to be able to make this recipe. And all along the way, we try to decide what is essential versus what is not essential. So is it essential for me to have a camper if I'm going away for the weekend camping? Depends on whether I want to enjoy the weekend or suffer for the weekend, right? Is it essential for me to have an electric drill to do a project around my house? Depends on whether I want the project to take two hours or 20 minutes. Is it essential for me to have flour to make cookies? Depends on whether I like my cookies to be cookies or mush. Everything we do, we're asking along the way, what do I need to be able to succeed or accomplish what I'm setting out to do? The same thing is true of us seeking after our joy and happiness. That in all sorts of ways, we ask and answer the question, probably often subconsciously, what do I need to be happy? And many ways, thinking, saying, well, if I have this, I'll be happy, whatever this is. Or as long as I have this, I'll be happy whatever this is. It it may be a a certain standard of living. It it may be the approval of people around us. It may be a a certain amount of leisure time. But in all sorts of ways, we're all asking and answering the question, what do I need? What is essential for me to be happy? Last week, we started this series on 1 John. Looking at 1 John through the lens of what John says in chapter 1, verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy, John would say both yours and mine, may be complete. And so in a book that we said last week is aimed at the highest happiness of its readers, including us as we read it, where does John start? What does he say is the essential untradeable, non-negotiable ingredient for our joy. Knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. That the essential ingredient for our joy is knowing Jesus. You, you can open up back up to 1 John verses 1 through 4. That's where we're going to be this morning again, focusing mainly on verses 1 through 3. 
But if Jesus is the essential ingredient for our joy, it means everything else may come and go and may play a part in our joy and happiness, but is not essential. And it means that as things come and go, no matter what's happening in our lives, we can have joy in knowing him. John's first paragraph in this book, as we're going to see in a moment as we read it, sets our sights entirely on Jesus and gives us a description of him that is wonderful and breathtaking as we look over it. And so we want to read through these verses and see what is John telling us about Jesus and why it matters that we know him for us to have joy. So let's pray first and then read John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Father, we know that there is an enemy who only seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus, we know that why you came, why you rescue us, why you invite us to know you, to live for you, to worship you, is so that we might have life and have it abundantly. And I pray that that's the life we would see that we have even this morning and the life that we would enjoy in knowing you, not just on a Sunday morning, but every day throughout our lives. And so help us to see and enjoy Jesus this morning, even as we look at John's words in 1 John. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. If it's true that knowing Jesus is the essential ingredient for joy in life, then several things flow out of that that we can see just by looking at these verses bit by bit. First of all, and, and this, some of these might be shocking, but the first one being right doctrine matters for our joy. Right doctrine, right theology, what we believe matters for our joy. John has a knack for catching his reader's attention. He does it both in his gospel that he writes and in this book. He doesn't start with small talk. He doesn't start with the typical introduction you would find in a letter. He says, hey, you know the God who created everything? The one who flung the stars into the sky. The one who spoke the mountains into existence. The one who's been around for all eternity. The one who's formed every human being, including me and you. The one who rules over every single atom in the galaxy and every single event in human history. You know that, God? 
I touched him. I saw him. I watched him. I heard him. I mean, John says it in some ways so nonchalantly that it's easy for us just to walk right past it. It would almost be as if I was in a conversation with you after church and I asked you, hey, how was your week? And you responded and said, it was a good week. Uh, I, I mowed the lawn on Monday. I went to work. I had breakfast with Michael Jordan and the kids and I watched a movie on Friday night. You had breakfast with Michael Jordan? What? A statement like that would spark awe and wonder. And that's exactly what John's statement in verse one is meant to do for us. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Doctrine should spark wonder. The doctrine, what we believe and confess about God and ourselves and this world should always lead to wonder and awe. And it's unfortunate that there can be, I think, a suspicious hesitation towards doctrine, both from those outside the church and inside the church even. That outside the church, people view doctrine as if it's unnecessary and divisive. And I wonder if sometimes within the church, we view doctrine as if it's necessary but it's irrelevant for our day-to-day lives. Almost, almost viewing it like cough medicine. It's necessary. I know I need it, but, but it doesn't taste good. And it's unfortunate for us if we view doctrine and theology in that way because it's meant to be something that should increase our joy in knowing Jesus. Part of what brings us joy Part of what brings us happiness is to come across things that make us say, wow. And every last thing that we teach, that we learn, that we know about God should end with us saying, wow. Wow. Like doctrine seeks to take some big, incredible, true reality and put it before our eyes to just marvel at which is what John's doing in verse 1. Like There are ways where we can talk about things, where we make them sound bigger and better than what they really are. That's not what doctrine does. Doctrine seeks to take something that we can never fully grasp or explain completely, and yet try to get it in front of us to see and to marvel at. It's sort of like the difference of talking about Ruby Falls versus Niagara Falls. All of you are familiar with Niagara Falls, I'm sure. Some of you might be familiar with Ruby Falls. Ruby Falls is found in Chattanooga, Tennessee, on Lookout Mountain. And it's described as the largest underground waterfall in North America. And it's built up to be this incredible thing. And so you go down into the cave and you think, I'm going to see the largest underground waterfall in America. This is awesome and you get down to the bottom, and you look up, and it's essentially just mist coming down. At least it was when I was there visiting it. And you're like, man, this was made to be so much better than what it actually is. And then you have Niagara Falls. 
that words can never do justice to. Like, I remember standing and taking in Niagara Falls for the first time as a kid and just thinking, wow. To, to see it from up top and see the water just gushing over, wow. To look at it from the bottom and see the water coming down, wow. To ride out on the made of mist and feel the mist coming up from the water and hear the roar, wow. Wow. No words could ever do full justice to this. That's what doctrine is always meant to do for us. To have us look at God, who he is, what he's done, and say, wow, that is my God. I mean, this is why John starts in the way he does. He's saying, let me tell you about a reality that still takes my breath away every time I think about it. I touched God. I touched God. That's why he starts at the incarnation. Because doctrine should spark wonder. And the other thing, too, is that doctrine should shape experience. I want to go back, actually, first. I had a quote, and I think it's an important quote to read. So let me read it, because I think this ties in with what John is saying. This is a quote by Michael Reeves. And he says, The tragedy is that knowledge of God for its own sake is commonly treated as Christians, as a cerebral and impractical luxury. We like books that show us how to. We like sermons that give us something to do. They feel more productive. And that's not wrong. But, and he quotes John 17.3 here, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Amid our hectic lives, amid all our challenges and trials, it is the fresh contemplation of the glory of God that will bring the right, bigger, healthier, happier perspective to all we are going through. Doctrine should always produce a type of joyful wonder as we contemplate God and what he's like. And that's exactly what John is doing with the Incarnation I mean, think about it. if Jesus came as a, if Jesus as God come as a man, there are no limits or bounds to God's love for us. If Jesus is really God come as a man, the barrier between God and us is gone in him. If Jesus is really God come as a man, it means he cares about every single aspect of our lives, including our bodies. If Jesus is really God come as a man, it means he is with us through every high and low. If Jesus has really God come as a man, it means God is absolutely for us because why else would he take on human flesh to live amongst us? I think Charles Spurgeon hit the nail on the head when he said every single doctrine is to the Christian a source of joy. Doctrine should spark joy and wonder. And then the second thing, which I already said, should shape experience. Think with me for a moment. Who is writing this letter? The Apostle John, we believe. Probably in 80 to 90 AD. Which means at this point that he's writing it, he's most likely the last living disciple of Jesus. He's seen all of his closest friends be killed. He's been chased away from his home, Jerusalem, which then he saw utterly destroyed in 70 AD. 
and he's going to be exiled or has already been exiled to an island in his life. And he's saying, we can have fullness of joy. And think about who he's writing to. Churches, probably in Asia Minor at this time, in the first century, who are experiencing division, as we'll see from John's letter later on. Difficulty, discouragement, all sorts of suffering and at times persecution. And John is saying to them, you can have fullness of joy. And we might imagine them saying, why, John? John said, because God is on our side. John, how do we know that everything seems to be going against us? Because God came as one of us. He lived with us. He died for us. He rescued us. And we're going to live with him one day. And so we can have fullness of joy no matter what might come our way, John would say. See, doctrine is always meant to shape our experience in this life. Not the other way around. And if we base our view of God on what we're experiencing, we'll always end up with a distorted view of him. If we base our view of God simply on what we're experiencing right in front of us, we'll always end up with a distorted view of him. So when life is difficult or not going how I want it to, I will instinctively say then, God, you don't care about me. Or even more, God, you've turned against me. And that won't lead to joy. That will just lead to greater despair. But if we base our experience on what we believe and know to be true from this, then we can find a joy that is steady no matter what experience we face. Experience is always meant to be shaped by what we believe. We, we might think of doctrine as if it's a trellis. A trellis is a framework that's put up that's meant to help a vine grow up on it. It's meant to shape that vine, that the vine conforms to whatever that structure is that it's growing up on. And without that structure, the vine simply goes wild. In the same way, doctrine is meant to be a structure that we put all of our experience against and say, I know this to be true of God, therefore, I'm going to view my experience through that lens, not the other way around. So when life is difficult, John would say, I can look at God becoming a man. I can look at him coming and living as one of us, dying, being raised for me. And I can know that God is absolutely for me. And that's the lens I'm going to look through as I head into whatever this experience is. Doctrine's always meant to shape our experience. And that's how it can give us joy even as we walk through difficult experiences. Which, I think this would be a takeaway from what John says in that first verse and maybe even this whole passage. Theology is an avenue to greater joy. Theology is an avenue to greater joy. That the more seriously we study the scriptures, the more deep our joy might grow. 
that the more we simply remain on the surface as we read through the scriptures, the more our joy might be surfacy. But the deeper we drink of the well God's given us, the more we dive into it, study it, wrestle with it, the more our joy in Christ might actually grow. And here's just a suggestion for us as a church. One of the ways that we might pursue joy in the coming year, beyond just studying these, it's actually a way of studying these, I think, is to find a really good, theologically rich book and read it. That doesn't sound like an avenue to joy on the surface, but if knowing Christ is what brings us joy, then to find a book, maybe like a J.I. Packer's Knowing God, that I'll reference in a couple minutes, or a Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly, which we talk about at Keystone often, or just to go to someone in the church who you look up to and respect and say, hey, what's a book that God has really used in your own life? And then to pick it up and read it. That that might be an avenue into deeper joy as we contemplate and behold our God and what he's really like. If it's true that knowing Jesus is the most important ingredient for our joy, then right doctrine matters. And also, real relationship matters. Real relationship matters. And this is where I'm going to kind of couch in some ways everything we just covered in that first point. Because John tells us in verse 1 first, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then he says in verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John has a really common way of equating life, especially eternal life, with Jesus, with knowing Jesus. We find it all across the pages in his gospel and we're going to find it again and again in this letter he's written to. So in John 5, or 1 John 5, 11 through 12, here's what he'll say. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So when John says... Life is in Jesus. What does he mean? What does he mean? He's not just saying eternal life in the sense of future life after we die with Jesus. But he's also saying there is a quality of life here and now which is only available in knowing Jesus. In some sense, he's saying the life that you and I were made for real life, the life we long for, a life of joy is only found in knowing Jesus. And all other life apart from that is only an imitation of that. All other life apart from knowing Jesus, outside of knowing Jesus, is only an imitation of the life and joy we find in knowing Jesus. I think of, we could almost say it's like 
imitation crab versus real crab. You've been to a store before and probably seen they have imitation crab that's meant to smell and look and taste like crab, and yet you know there is no comparison between that and catching a real live crab, cooking it, and eating it fresh. There's a world of difference between what's imitating and what's real. And I think when John says life, eternal life, quality of life, joy is found in knowing Jesus, he's saying every single other life, joy, we pursue in this life outside of knowing Jesus is just an imitation of what we can find in him. That joy is found in a person. Joy is found in a person. And let's just stop for a moment and think about how offensive it is when we say that. It might not seem that way, but stop and think how offensive it is when we say joy is found in a person. It's saying we don't ultimately know what will make us happy on our own. We don't know what will give us life on our own. We don't know how to live on our own. We need someone else to show us, to tell us, and to give us life and joy. We naturally tend to think, I know what will make me happy, so I'm going to pursue that. Right? I know what's going to make me happy, so I'll pursue it. I know that having more money is going to make me happy, so that's what I'm going to pursue. I, I know that getting more people to approve of or like me is what will make me happy, so I'll pursue that. I know that having comfort in this life is what's going to make me happy, so I'll pursue that. I know that living as the opposite gender is what's going to make me happy, so I'll pursue that. Everyone across the board says things like, I know what will make me happy, so now I'm going to pursue after that. And Jesus has the audacity, the boldness, and the authority to look us in the eyes and say, no, you don't. We don't know what will make us happy. We don't know what will bring us life. And we need him to show us, to tell us, and to give us life. Like a, a Jesus that simply rubber stamps all our dreams in this life will never be offensive to us or anyone else. But a Jesus who reorients every dream, hope, desire around him is always going to be offensive in this life. Because it means we don't simply say, what will make me happy and I'm going to pursue that, but what will help me to know Jesus better? What will help me to serve him better? What does he say will make me happy? What does he say will bring me life and joy? Now I'm going to conform my life around him and what he says. Because he is life. He is eternal life. Joy in life is found in knowing him. And, and this is where I want to circle back to what we were hitting on the first point and say this. Doctrine should always be personal. We're not simply meant to know about Jesus. We're meant to know Jesus. J.I. Packer has said something in his book, Knowing God, that I can never forget. Here, here's what he says. A little knowledge of God 
is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. He says to be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge as an end to itself, to approach the Bible with no higher motive than a desire to know all the answers is the direct route to a state of self-satisfied self-deception. Our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. I mean, that comes straight from the mouth of a person that many would say is the greatest theologian in the past century. And he's saying, if we only know facts about God, it doesn't matter. Like, if our goal is simply to know the right answers, to be able to give the right opinions, to be able to agree with the right truths, to talk about the sovereignty of God, to be able to explain justification or sanctification or have the right words to talk about the incarnation or whatever other shun we have on there. If that's our goal, and, the end, and as good as those things are, they matter for our joy, remember point one. But if our end goal is not to know the God who is and lives and is personal, then all that knowledge ends up being a waste and only serves to make us more proud and self-righteous. And I know that because of how often in my own life I'm prone or tempted to think I'm somehow a better Christian because I went to Bible college, went to seminary, or that God's called me to be a pastor. That, that's foolish. That's sinful. Our end goal is not to know facts. Our end goal is to know a person the one who really lives, the one who really exists, the one who really became one of us, the one who still is a human and who one day we will see face to face. And there's a massive difference between knowing about something and actually knowing it personally. Like th this is the difference between being able to take a test about coral reefs and get an A on the test because we know everything that it takes to grow a coral reef and, and the animals that are in it and the ecosystem and all. It's the difference between acing a test and putting on scuba gear and diving down into a coral reef and exploring it. That's the difference between simply knowing facts about God and actually knowing God and saying he's a person, he's right here with us, he cares for us, I can know him. And all the facts I know about him are just meant to make me that much more amazed that this is the God who I actually know. The more John discovered about Jesus, the more he was amazed that this was the one he saw, heard, touched, and watched. So how do we take knowledge about God, doctrine, good things, and turn it into knowledge of God, personal knowledge? I think one way is that we meditate on truth until it becomes personal. That we take a verse in scripture, we take a truth, we take a doctrine, we take something we believe about God, and we turn it over and around. We do essentially what John said he did with Jesus. We look at it, we listen to it, we touch it, so what difference would it make if I really believe this is my God? He is alive, he's with me, and he is personal. This is where J.I. Packer followed up on his quote that we said earlier. He says, how can we turn knowledge about God into knowledge of God? 
The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before him, leading to prayer and praise to God. That, that we don't just read the Bible so we know the right answers and have the right facts, but we read it because we're hearing from a person, God. That we don't just pray because we say that's what we're supposed to do. We, say, we pray because it means we have the ears of a person, God, who's with us. That when we sing on Sunday morning, we sing to a person. That as we go throughout our daily lives and all the ordinary things, doing laundry, driving to work, caring for kids, remember, we do it being able to have communion with God. He is a person. He's with us. That is our God. That we take everything and we make it personal, not just facts to know. This is why then John can go on to say, we have fellowship even right now with God. That he's going to say rich fellowship matters for our joy. That's the third point. So John goes on in verse 3, and let's look back at what he says. He says, that which we have seen and heard, Jesus, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I think fellowship is one of those words that ends up getting hollowed out and can become meaningless the more we use it over time. In fact, even as I was wrestling with, like, how do I describe this third point? I was like, I don't want to put fellowship in there because it's just this word that becomes almost pointless. But I couldn't think of what's a better word to put in there. But when John uses that word, fellowship, He's not using it because he's been a, to a fellowship meal after church. He's not using it because he's been to a coffee hour before church. That, that's not what he means by that word. Fellowship for John is being bound together with one another by a common goal and a common love. It's a I have your back no matter what type of bond. It's a, I'll be there for you in an instant type of bond. It's a, I'm willing to fight for you type of bond. It's a, if someone messes with you, they mess with me type of bond. It's a, I would go to battle with you type of bond. I'm writing these, this letter to these churches because saying, I care about you and I care about what's happening to you. And so I'm writing this letter so that you can have fellowship with us. It's not what small talk over donuts creates. It's what small talk over donuts is rooted in and is meant to help us cultivate more and more. We, we played a, a game in youth group uh, where the game was that we split everyone into two teams and then we played basketball in this gym, which sounds simple enough, but with youth group, there, there was always a twist. And so here was the twist you had to pair up with someone else on your team. And then we would give you an extra large t-shirt. And you would have to get inside that t-shirt with that other person. And so you'd have to get in and stick your arm out one side and then have your arm down here and your head out the top of the shirt. And then the other person would have to get in and stick their arm out the other side, have their head outside the shirt and have their arm in. And then for the whole game, you were stuck together. So you had to communicate together. You had to run together. You had to dribble together. 
you had to work together. And if you didn't, the game didn't work at all. That shirt bound you together, and you couldn't pull apart from one another. That's what fellowship is meant to be. That Jesus binds us together with one another. No, we don't get a shirt and crawl into it together. But in some sense, Jesus and what he's done for us and who he is binds us together even closer than having the same shirt on together. I mean, Jesus, first of all, binds us together with one another, which means that we are meant to pursue joy in knowing Jesus side by side. I mean, what if that was one of our goals every time we gather together, whether on a Sunday morning or throughout the week or any other time, as we come to sing and to serve and to make small talk after church, that part of our goal was, I want to increase other people's joy in knowing Jesus. And part of what I hope they're going to do for me is the same. I mean, I think that falls under part of why the author of Hebrews tells us not to neglect gathering together each week. He, he says this in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. So we should meet together week after week after week. Why? To encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. And does not seeking each other's highest happiness in Christ, pointing each other back to him over and over again, fall under what it means to encourage one another as we gather together. And John says, not only does Jesus bind us together with one another, but he binds us to God. This is the shocker at the end of verse 3 when we read back through it. That John says, through Jesus, we have fellowship with God. I mean, think about what that means. That God has our back. That he'll fight for us. That he's going to work in us. That in some sense, we can say God is our best friend. Not just he's our father, which we often talk about, which is true. But if we have fellowship with him, in some sense, we can say God is our best friend. And that the same type of love and delight we have when we get together with our best friend, God has now for us in Jesus. I mean, do, do we believe that about God? That he actually likes us? That he's friends with us through Christ because of all that Jesus has done? I think the more we do believe that, the more we'll be about his mission, his glory, his purpose in this life, and not just simply our own. I think we see that's the end goal of all Jesus does for us. That we would be friends with the creator and the ruler of the universe. That the end goal is relationship with God through Christ. God saying he is our friend because of all that Jesus has done for us. And notice, John binds those two together. Fellowship with God fellowship with one another, relationship with God, relationship with his people, that we should stitch together life with God and life with his people, not separate those into two different things, but that all we know and believe of God should then affect how we relate to each other as his people. Ray Ortland 
puts it this way. He says, gospel doctrine should create gospel culture. The more we know of Jesus, the more it should influence how we relate to each other. And think even just of the incarnation that John's pointing us to. If Jesus humbled himself and, became, and came as a man, well, well, that means that we should humble ourselves as we relate to one another. If Jesus shows us incredible, unending grace, that means we should be quick and ready to show each other grace. If Jesus' most natural posture to us is welcoming arms, that means our most natural posture to one another is welcoming arms. That joy is found in knowing God and knowing his people and binding those two together. And here's the reality that I think flows out of that. The more we enjoy Jesus, the more we'll want other people to enjoy him as well. The more that we find our joy in Christ, the more that we'll want other people to have that same joy in him. We'll want others in the church to have that joy as we gather together. And we'll want others outside the church to find and know Christ and have joy in him as we scatter and go out. A couple weeks ago, I played, actually it was more than a couple weeks ago, a month or two ago, I played a new board game for the first time called Raccoon Tycoon. And I found myself really enjoying it. Not just because the name is fantastic, Raccoon Tycoon, but because it combines some of the best games in the world, Monopoly and Settlers, into one. And I had so much fun. I was enjoying it. I was like, this is a great game. And so when I went home that night, I immediately was talking to my wife and said, hey, we have to buy this game. And we should play it with your sister and her husband because I think they'll really enjoy it. And within a couple of weeks, I had told three or four other people about this game and they should get it or they, they need to play it because it's so much fun. Why? Because I instinctively took what I enjoyed and I wanted other people to enjoy it as well. See, when we pursue our joy in knowing Christ, then more and more we start to say, I want other people to know this same joy as well. When we find him to be the essential ingredient in our joy, then we want other people to have the same joy that we found. And think about what a life that is. A life where we're seeking joy in knowing Jesus our highest happiness, and a life where we're about helping other people to be joyful and happy in knowing Christ. That's the life John calls us to. That's the life I would say Jesus calls us to as well. Let's pray. Father, we want all of our joy to be found in you found in you, that we might say, no matter what is happening in our lives, your steadfast love in Christ is better than life. We ask that as we go through our lives, as we open up your word, as we call out to you, as we sing to you, that more and more we might find joy in knowing the one who created all things, the one who rules all things, 
came as a man. And because of that, we can know you and we can face whatever comes our way in this life with you side by side with us. God, may that make our joy sink down deep, deep, deep. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.